If you want to find your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I don't know if you saw this, there was a poll that was taken recently by the British Nutrition Foundation that decided that they would put some of their resources to good use to find out what kids actually thought about the origins of the food that they were eating. So this is pretty extensive, 27,500 kids age 5 all the way through 16, and they asked them a variety of questions regarding the origins of their food. And some of the results are startling. So, for instance, a third of the U.K. primary, uh, primary pupils think that cheese is made from plants, which is interesting. I'm not sure how they got that, but that's what they think. Okay, so where do you think fish fingers are from? Okay, so I said fish fingers, Okay. Well, according to a quarter of the U.K. children, they think that fish fingers come from chicken or pigs, okay? So I'm not sure what's going on there, but that's what they think. One in ten secondary pupils actually thinks that tomatoes actually grow underground, okay? They also found out that, hmm, we've got all sorts of confusion. So like source of staples, like, for instance, pasta and bread. Among the younger pupils, about one-third a five- to eight-year-olds believe that, like, pasta or bread comes from meat. I'm like, what? Okay, so, okay. About 19% of this age group didn't even realize that potatoes grew underground. So, all that to say is there is a lot of confusion among the children of the U.K. I'm sure that folks, kids down here in America, were doing good, right? I don't know. Now, I have, I have high hopes. I believe that these kids, once they are shown and it is explained, where potatoes come, you know, grow, and where pasta and bread, how it's made. We're fish fingers, okay, <laughs> of all things. I believe that once this is explained and shown that these kids are like, okay, I get it, and they're going to increase in their understanding, and they're going to have happy lives. I think that's going to happen. But the same could be said about our spiritual lives. Really, until it's explained what true spirituality is and where it's really found, I think you're going to find that there's a widespread amount of confusion. So, for instance, if I ask, like, what is true spirituality and where it's found? There's a lot of folks that say, well, you, you have to be religious. In fact, when it comes to religion, we've got more flavors of religion than Baskin-Robbins ever thought about in terms of ice cream, okay? In fact, you can invent your own religion. You can grab, take, whatever you want, because we're pretty open to that. And Or some people say, well... You've got to have like a mystical, spiritual experience if you're going to really be religious. Or you need to be a good person. Or you need to, you need to be a part of a denomination or like show up at a church. If you're going to be religious, you've got to do religious things. And then, of course, there's some people that just say, well, you just kind of have to act holy. You know, if we can't answer this question, where true spirituality is found, what it looks like, how it develops, we're in a world of hurt. In fact, it's kind of like the equivalent of just walking around in the dark But when someone turns the light on, all of a sudden you can see. Let me just tell you about true spirituality. True spirituality is when Christ and God's word transforms our way of life. That's what true spirituality is. And this is exactly what we see when we come to the book of 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, remember we've been kind of just starting going through this book. We looked at how... The gospel came to this major city, the Thessalonica in Macedonia. And even though it was in a very hostile environment and people who are opposed to the gospel message, opposed to Paul and Sabanus and Timothy, 
Yet this, the gospel flourished, this church took off, and we see that even in the midst of difficult circumstances, the, the gospel and the word of God took root and flourished. Look at it in verse 6. I want you to, to notice something that is absolutely essential to understanding true spiritual life. Paul says, verse 6, chapter 1, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. And this is what I want you to see. Having received the word. You see that? They received the word. They did so in much tribulation. So there's a lot of difficulty, hostility, troubles. However, they did so with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So they received it, much difficulty, received the word, and yet there was tribulation. And he says in verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And then look at verse 8. For the word of the Lord, you might want to underline that again. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God. The word of God is met by faith in God, and this is what develops true spirituality. And he says, your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. This is what true spirituality is. When the word of God is received and it's met by faith, it flourishes and it multiplies. This shouldn't surprise us because this is exactly what Jesus said is the nature of true spiritual growth. You remember in... Uh, Jesus' ministry, he began telling parables. And one parable has a lot of prominence. In fact, Matthew, in fact, you can turn there to Matthew 13. We're going to spend the rest of time there. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives this parable, the parable of the sower. And so let's take a look at it, Matthew chapter 13, because to understand what is really taking place in Thessalonica, you have to have a really good understanding of this parable because it is being put into action in Thessalonica. Now, just as you're finding Matthew 13, first uh, book in the New Testament, to give you a little bit of background, in Matthew chapter 12, there was a very significant event that took place where there was a demon-possessed man who was also mute, couldn't speak, and he couldn't hear. He was deaf. And Jesus heals this man. The demon is cast out, and all of a sudden this man can speak and hear. And people who are saying, whoa, this is a mighty work of God. This certainly must be the son of David, must be the Messiah. And all the people that witnessed this miracle, they're clamoring, this must be the Messiah. Only God could do this. This promised one we've been waiting for, he's here. Well, the Jewish aristocracy, the leadership, the Pharisees and the scribes, they said, no way. We're not going to have this carpenter's son he is not going to be our Messiah. We don't like what he's saying. He doesn't fit into our idea of having some sort of military conqueror. We don't want this guy to be our Messiah. And they made this statement that he, this Jesus, does the works. His power comes from Beelzebul. He's the ruler of the demons. What you see Jesus doing there saying is like, this comes from Satan. This is a major turning point. Israel's leadership has rejected Jesus. And after Jesus then gives a few statements about the unpardonable sin, which is when you ascribe the work of God done by the Son of God, not to the Spirit of God, but to Satan, he says that is the unpardonable sin. And from this time forth, 
Jesus starts speaking in parables, and that's exactly what you see in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. On this day, see that? Verse 1, chapter 13. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and a large crowds and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into the boat, sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach, and he spoke many things to them in parables. So what is a parable? A parable literally means to lay something alongside, okay? So what Jesus did is he would actually tell something that was very familiar to the people. Like, for instance, like about money or about farming or about fishing, things that they were very familiar with. And then he would lay it aside a spiritual truth that they simply had not understood, And that's what a parable does. And so Jesus, on this very day, he is now going to be sitting in a boat. And they actually, uh, just southwest of Capernaum, about a mile away, they actually have this major cove. And they even call it the Cove of the Parables. And, I mean, Israel has taken this, like, really seriously. They've gone and had acoustical experts go out there to see that if you could sit in a boat, could you, the masses here. And they have found out that, indeed, this would be an ideal place. And so that's exactly what Jesus does. He he goes, he is, he is at, in the sea, he is sitting by the sea, and he gets into this boat, he sits down, and the whole crowd is standing. This position of sitting, this is what a rabbi would do before he taught, a position of authority. And the people were standing and listening. He's in this boat, and this whole crowd is standing by him, and Jesus is going to tell them a parable. He's going to lay aside something, tell them something familiar and lay aside something they don't understand. Now, Here he goes, and he begins this parable, and he says, Behold, the sower went out to sow. I would imagine they're thinking that Jesus is going to explain to us what really is going on with the Pharisees and scribes. But now he's going to tell a story. A sower, they're certainly familiar with that. He went out to sow. And that's they're familiar with this. It happened actually about this time of the year, between October and December. uh, There would be farmers, and there were farms all around, And they literally would walk and they would broadcast the seed. They would just kind of throw it on the ground and they would do that. And then after they did that, they would they would actually turn the soil about an inch, about three inches. And that seed would be buried in the ground. So they were very familiar with this. And Jesus is going to give like a 4-H seminar. And here he is. He's talking about it. And he says, verse four, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road and the birds came and ate them up. So he says, you know, some some seed just kind of falls on this wayward soil. It's uh, wayside soil. It's um, hard packed because in between all the plots of land that they farmed would be these like paths. And if you've ever seen a dirt path that lots of people walk on, I mean, it is like, it's like hard. It's like asphalt. And he says, you know, as the seed is getting broadcast, some just lands there. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what happens then. It gets, it lands there and fell beside the road. And these paths could be up about three feet wide. And the birds came and ate them up. So the birds are kind of flying around. They see, oh, there's the old farmer there. He's kind of trying to plant seed. And they know that some seed is going to land on this hard soil, the path. And they just swoop down and they they just eat it all up. It's gone. And they were very familiar with this. And then, but some seed, he says, verse 5, others fell on the rocky soil, rocky places, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched because they had no root and they withered away. Now, I don't know a ton about farming. I do know that rocks and farming are a bad combination. So 
when I was a kid, my parents would take us on a summer vacation, and we would go to my grandparents' farm in North Dakota. I don't know who thought of this idea, but they thought it would be a wonderful time for us to go and pick rocks out of the field, okay? And that's what we do. We'd be out there picking all these rocks and throwing it into the, the tractor. They had the, And, you know, so we just kind of throw it in there. My dad's sitting in the air-conditioned cab. He's pointing out where rocks are. It was a terrible situation. And I'm, I'm picking up rocks like, this is crazy, man. Okay, at least I'm going to get in shape picking all these rocks up. There was a reason why we were picking the rocks up, of course. You know, it wasn't like a futile exercise in case some of your parents were like, oh, I haven't never done that to my kid. I'll try that and see how that works. Really, the reason we did that is because uh, when it came harvest time and they had the combines going through, well, if a rock got picked up by the combine, it would have a tendency to break it down. And all sorts of unpleasant things happened when the combine broke down at harvest time, okay? And they bring it in the shop, and unkind words were spoken, and everybody's trying to fix it, and it was a big deal. So what do you do? You just get the rocks out of the field. That was our job. Well, you see, in Israel, there is like a strata of limestone. It's a limestone rock bed. goes through most of Israel, and, and really, it could come up right up to the soil. It could be just barely beneath it. And so what happens is sometimes some of the seed land in this rocky soil... And it quickly germinate, but the sun would come down and just fry it, and scorch it. It just didn't have any roots. And it's gone, and that's what Jesus is saying. And it just withers away. And then, of course, look at verse 7. Others, as this farmer is sowing a seed, others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And so there would be weeds, okay? Some of you have weeds in your front yard or your backyard, right? And, and they're there, and they have weeds, and they have thorns in Israel. In fact, that's native to the soil. Now, these thorns, if you, don't, if you don't knock them down, they can grow up to like six feet high, and they have this really gnarly root system, and they literally take over. Well, some of the seed would be thrown, and it would land amidst the thorns. And, of course, you know what happened? If it's in the weeds, the weeds would literally choke it out. The weeds are drinking up all the water. The weeds would actually overpower the plant and take all the sun. And guess what? Your seed, it just kind of withers away. In fact, that's what happens it, it gets literally choked out it's like oh, i can't breathe i can't drink and it and it goes away well they're all familiar with that but then just in case you were thinking that farming is completely futile verse eight and others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop but then when jesus said this they're like what some a hundredfold some 60 and some Thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Some lands in the good soil. Now, the normal yield uh, at, a, at a farm in Israel at the time of Jesus was a tenfold yield. That means that for every seed that you planted, you would get ten back. That's a pretty good deal. Jesus says, if you fall in the good soil, you could have like a hundredfold or sixty or thirty. This would be considered like miraculous. I mean, no way. That would never happen. You, never, you get one in ten? Yeah, one in a one. And you get 100 back? No way. And then Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. And this word hear, it's more than just that you listen, but that you understand and you act. It's like the idea that you hear, you understand, and you actually heed it. And so Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. And it's almost like Jesus said, I'm done. Let's roll back to the shore. Are you serious? And everybody's standing there like, what? He, wait, a story about farming, all this, I mean, it makes sense, but it doesn't make any sense why he's telling us a parable like this. What, what's going on? And, and then Jesus literally is done. You've got the masses. He tells them this little story about farming, and he says, let's go back to shore. Well, 
the disciples, look at verse 10. They, they want to understand they, what exactly is this about. And they inquire. And the disciples came to him, verse 10, and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? What is the strategy behind this method? Why are you telling them stories? Well, Jesus says there's about three reasons why I am going to speak in parables. In fact, from now on, about a third of Jesus' teaching ministry comes in parable form. He says, I'm going to explain to you. First of all, uh, the reason I'm going to speak in parables, he says, beginning in verse 11, is to reveal more truth to believers. Jesus answered them to you. You see that verse 11? It has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. To you. To you who believe, I'm going to give you even more truth. Mystery has the idea of something that had never been disclosed before that is now revealed. So something not revealed in the Old Testament is now revealed and even explained in the New Testament. It was a mystery in the sense that no one knew about it before. And now Jesus, or Jesus has his apostles, give explanation. He says, I want you to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. What it means to be in the realm of the king, where I am the king and my reign in human hearts and my rulership of the universe. I'm going to explain these things to you, but I'm going to give this all to you in parables. And so one of the things he says is, I want you to know that while I'm doing this is I'm going to give you more truth. And it's really interesting, he says in verse 11, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. You see that verse 12? You've got something. You come, you ask questions, you seek after me, you're hungry, you want to know. I'm going to give you even far more understanding. So that was one of the reasons why he gave parables. But there's another reason why he was going to give parables. And he begins at the end of verse 12 and verse 13. And that is to conceal truth from hostile unbelievers. Look at verse 12. He says, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Verse 13. Therefore, I speak to them in parables. Because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. One of the reasons I'm going to do this and speak in parables is I'm going to conceal truth, though it's right in front of them, from the hostility of unbelievers. It's kind of like the Jewish scribes and these Pharisees and these Sadducees that are just out to get Jesus. They would, they would say, well, okay, so, hey, what is Jesus saying? Well, he's, ah, oh, he's just making me mad. Well, what is he saying that makes you so mad? Well, he's, he's talking about farming. What? Well, what's, what's, what's that? Why is that such a problem? I don't know. I don't quite understand it, but it just makes me mad, okay? And that's kind of the mentality. They are hearing, but yet they're not perceiving and understanding what he's saying. He says, you know what? That's what I'm going to do. Even though they see me, they're not going to really see. Even though they see me fulfilling the scriptures, they're not going to get it. Even though they hear me giving the word of God, they hear me giving the gospel, they hear me fulfilling scriptures and how this all points to me. They hear about what life is and how it's meant to be lived in relationship to me. They're not going to hear it, even though they are hearing it. And there's one other reason, and that is to fulfill prophecy. Beginning in verse 14, he says, I want to quote you from Isaiah. How I am functioning has been prophesied. There's about 330 prophecies given in the Old Testament regarding Messiah. 
And Jesus systematically is fulfilling them, which should have put people on the alert that knew the Hebrew scriptures. And let me assure you, many of the very ones that rejected him knew these scriptures and they're seeing him fulfill them. They're like, we don't want you. But Jesus says, you know what? I've got to fulfill all the scriptures. And so he says, verse 14, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah, and he's going to begin quoting from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and, don't miss this, and return, and I would heal them. God had said all the way back through the prophet Isaiah, I'm going to give this truth, and it had an intent. The intent is that you would receive it, you'd understand it, and you would turn from your wicked, wayward ways of living life independent of me, uh, independent of me, and you would believe in me and trust in me. But they won't have it. And so I'm going to give it to them in parables. And so he says, verse 16, But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you, and look at verse 17. I've got to mark by this because this is such a significant verse. Listen to what Jesus says. But truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Righteous individuals, people that love God, believed the promises of the scripture, and even prophets who were giving prophecies uh, regarding Messiah, there was a longing to see them fulfilled. Who is this? When are you going to send this one who lives this perfect life, who heals the lame and, and heals the blind and gives hope to people and casts out demons? And where is this one who literally dies and takes upon the infirmities and the sin of mankind and lives again? Where, who is he? They wanted to see. That was one of the intent of the scriptures. And he says, Jesus said, you know what? There are a lot of people that were like that. But look how blessed you are. You actually see me. You hear my words. I'm it. Well, what is going on here? You see, Jesus gives parables. But some of these folks, they absolutely don't get what he's saying. It's kind of like uh, what took place on May 18th, 1980. Some of you remember when Mount St. Helens blew on that day. And now, they knew that the volcano was going to erupt. They knew that St. Helens was going to have this eruption. But when Mount St. Helens blew, it was far more devastating than they ever had calculated. When it blew, it was like an atomic explosion got off. It was heard 600 miles away when that whole side of the mountain just blew apart. And, I mean, it was very devastating. We had 57 people killed. But they found something fascinating when they were starting doing these rescue efforts. There were various individuals, men and women, that when they were rescued, they, they all had the same story, some of them. We, we never heard it. And we're like, what are you talking about? How, how, how could you possibly miss it? It was heard 600 miles away. We're like, we didn't, we didn't hear it. In fact, some of them said that, well, they, they saw, but they took it as just another cloud system moving in. You know, so the people up in the Northwest... Uh, you live like that for like 300 days a year. And like, oh, here comes another cloud system. And they never heard it. Scientists helped them understand what took place. It's referred to 
as the zone of silence. You see, when Mount St. Helens blew, there was this incredible upward thrust. And with it, this exploding mountain had this like sound event where literally it created waves. And there were certain places that there was no sound because of the thrust of this mountain being shoved forward. And they refer to it as the zone of silence. And these people were literally in it. Friends, you need to know something. If you are hearing God's word, but it has no implications on your life, it's just in one ear and out the next. You don't understand, and you're really not interested. You don't really care about its implications. You need to know something. You're in the zone of silence. It's like it's right here, and you miss it, and it means nothing to you. <laughs> See that? People, they hear the word, maybe on the radio, maybe someone reads something. Uh, go to church and you hear the word. I mean, you can go to churches that are like liberal or super ritualistic and times they actually read from the scriptures and the word goes out, but it's just like, whoosh, I, I heard it, but I didn't. Just like Jesus said, you're in a real dangerous place. You're in the zone of silence. And so what takes place is when your heart's not right with God, you can't respond. And so you don't. So now Jesus is going to give the significance of this parable. They're asking, it's kind of like, you know, the other people are not going to understand. They're not as smart as us, and they're not going to understand. But in actuality, they're the ones that didn't understand. And so Jesus says, you know what, I'm going to tell you. So he gives the significance of this parable. Look at verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. Hear it. Listen, heed. Verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom... And does not understand it. The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed is sown beside the road. For those who hear the word, they hear the gospel. It's like seed that lands on a hardened path. Your heart is hard and it just sits there. I don't want you to miss this. Notice that the evil one, you see that? There is an enemy, Satan himself. And what he is after is the word. He knows that the seed gives life. The seed of the word of God has the ability to give all sorts of life that could multiply. And so what he has to do is keep people from the word. And he is great at it. To keep people from the word. To outlaw the book. To make sure that people that have it. Like most Americans, we have Bibles all over our places, every hotel, in our houses. But if he can keep you from it, he's one. Because it's the word that gives power. Or if to hear it, and you're just like tuning out and doing the grocery list, he's one. And so it lands on a hard heart, and he's talking about what spiritual growth really looks like. And Satan just comes and takes it away. You don't really need that. You don't need the word. And so that's exactly what happens. It's the unresponsive heart. This is what's going on to the scribes and Pharisees. They heard, nothing going on here. We won't have it. And it is taken away. And I'll tell you, you don't have to be anti-religious to have a hard heart. Some of the hardest hearts reside in churches. It's, it's a pattern of just bouncing off and Satan quickly takes it away. You be religious all you want. Dress up. Do rituals, that's fine. Just don't take the word seriously. Don't let it penetrate. Don't think about it and its implications. Let it go. Well, there, 
it's another soil. Remember, there's all these four different types of soils. And so Jesus says, let me help you understand. Verse 20. Remember, remember the soil in the rocky places? He says, the one, verse 20, on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. That's great. Yet, verse 21, he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, well, immediately he falls away. This is a superficial heart. Initially, they're like, yeah, of course I want Jesus, man. Who doesn't want God on their side? Heaven, hell. Hmm, tough decision. I think I'll go with heaven. What do I need to do? Just believe, say I believe in Jesus? Great, got it. Okay, done. I like that. That's all good, right? I want you to pay real close attention to this soil. These are the people that like the benefits of supposedly knowing Jesus. But they... They don't really trust him. There's like initial joy, but there's, as soon as there's any sort of problem, okay, like affliction or persecution, they immediately fall away. These are like the people that, like, you, you win a trip to Disney World. Like, every time I see one of those places, like, you can, like, take your family to Disney World or something like that, I always fill those in, right? I'm thinking, like, someday it's going to happen. Of course, it happened. But I think I like the idea that it might happen, but it never does. But these people are like, your name was drawn. Yes, how cool is that? And you're super excited, right? Because you like the idea of blessing, but the idea that it might cost you something. And that's what happens. You find out, like, well, following Jesus, you're like, hey, that's really great. And these people around me here at the church are all excited. They love me. They're praying for me. But then you show up back at work or back at school. And I'll tell you, you junior high, high school student, college, you find out, hey, what is this Jesus bit? That ain't working here. We don't like that so much. Now, in the South, you can, you can kind of like, hey, you know, I, I like Jesus. That's cool. But just don't take him so seriously like it might change your life. And certainly don't let it change your behavior where you start going against the grain of culture. Because you do that, man, we got problems. And so what happens is, you know, like you got kids, or college kids, you got folks show up and they're back with their family and say, you know what, I've I tell you what, I, I believe in Jesus, and I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see my life change. Like, no, you're not. And you find all sorts of resistance. Or they're like, the kids at school like, listen, man, you better drop the fanatical bit. And then like, oh, yeah, yeah, man, that's okay. Because after all, the most important thing is to be well-liked by people, right? i got to fit in. I cannot go against the grain. And if all of my supposed friends think it's kind of weird that I'm now sold out for Jesus, well, I can't have that, right? And so what happens? persecution, affliction, just like Jesus says it, it immediately takes place and it rises and because of the word and that person just immediately falls away. You see, he's talking about spiritual life here and growth. And this just doesn't bring fruit. It goes away. Well, uh, I will mention this. You know, when you hear of these people that they say they believe and and we like to do this, like a Hollywood person or a famous athlete, well, you know what happens is like we never even give these people a chance. And then they make some serious resistance in the culture. I, I'm always looking, is there a brokenness before God? Okay? There's joy in knowing Jesus, but there's also a brokenness of sin that makes me trust Jesus and have real joy all the more because I'm trusting in him as Savior. 
And they find that when God starts addressing the issues in their life, like their sin and their pornography and all their gossip and their pride and their bitterness and lack of forgiveness, I'm like, I don't want that. I, I'm, no, no, no. I, I want Jesus on my terms, and guess what happens? They just fall away. The journey of holiness is traveled by those whose heart is submitted to God. Well, there's a third soil. And he addresses it in verse 22. And this is the worldly heart. And the one in whom the seed has sown among the thorns. And friends, I just got to tell you, this is the one that really worries me the most. In my own life and the life of the people in our church. I am pretty sure that this is actually taking place. Look at verse 22. This is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The worries of this life, they they literally become preoccupied with the matters of this world. And and these these are good things. God even provides blessings like this, but but like your career, or your house, your car, your hobby, your wardrobe, your prestige, your looks, your riches, uh, it, it just occupies all your time. I mean, you can even get so focused on your illness or your problems that what happens is we lose our focus on Jesus and we're so fixated on the things of this world that it's like Jesus he, he, and his word, it just kind of goes strangely dim. We're just like, I, I've got this and it's all consuming. And it literally chokes it out. And specifically, he even lists the worries about being the deceitfulness of riches. Whether you have little or you've got a lot, money has a way of, like he says in Colossians, it's like about greed. It becomes an idol. And it literally owns you. And you just can't help but to be thinking about it. When Jesus gives this parable and Mark records it, he says, and the desires for other things. Literally anything that fuels your focus and gets it off Jesus, it, it becomes consuming and it's deceitful. And it's like what happens is it chokes you out. It chokes out the word because you're so preoccupied with this, this problem, this person, this goal, your career, what you look like, how people are perceiving. What happens is it chokes out the word. The word doesn't have the full response that it was looking for. And notice what he says. And it becomes unfruitful. This isn't about who and who's not a Christian. This is about true spirituality. God fully intends that you bear fruit. And then that leads us then to verse 23. And the one on whom the seed is sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it. He hears, remember, it has the idea that you not only you're listening to it, but you heed it and obey it and you understand. So, This word understand means to bring together. And so what he's saying is you hear, you're heeding, you obey it, and you're bringing together what you're learning to your life. They're brought together. That means to understand what's being said and how this applies to my life. It's understanding. It's brought together. He says, when this happens, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some hundredfold, some sixty, and some 30. There's fruit that comes from this. Friends, God is not interested in foliage. He's interested in fruit. It's not how big and green you are. It's how much fruit that God is producing through your life, in your life. How does that happen? 
when you have a humility and a submission and a yielding and abiding in Jesus and a response to his word. Friends, Proverbs 4.23 comes into play here. It says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. How are you receiving the word? You might be wondering, well, how do you know the condition of my heart? How could I really know? And I'll tell you. I will tell you the condition of your heart. You know how I can do it? The condition of our heart is revealed by your response to God's word. How do you respond? Because your response tells you the real condition of your heart. There's a guy I met years ago by the name of Sam Nero. Uh, real nice guy. He was older, um, and I, I was just impressed with him. And I asked him a story. I was like, tell me about what's gone in your life, and how did you end up like this? And he tells me that uh, he had been a business owner, and actually apparently a pretty successful one. Um, he started hearing the gospel. Different people came into his life, started sharing with him about Christ. And he came to a place of conviction, saw his sinfulness, certainly saw how he was very captured by money and career. And so he, he actually believes in Jesus, and he kind of turns from life of living apart from God to life believing in Jesus. And shortly after this, he actually loses his business. Now, for those of you who are business owners, if you've ever gone through this where you literally lose your business, he went from having a lot to literally having nothing. But yet he had everything because he had Jesus. And so, yeah, it was tough, but he had Christ and his relationship with Jesus. And um, he later became a principal at a small little Christian school and And that school continued to grow, and he became an elder in his church. Uh, One of the things I was really impressed with him is that that he was always quoting Proverbs, and he had memorized the entire book. And so it was like, really cool. He had this amazing love for the Lord and for his word. You see, for many people, that would be a devastating experience. But for the Christian who has a heart that is receptive to the word and receptive to the Lord, they flourish. You see, if you want to know what fruit looks like, just think of our mission statement of our church. To glorify God by living out the life we have in Christ. Life is an acronym. What does fruit look like? Loving God. Investing in others. uh, Following his word. And engaging our world. When you see your life in response to the world and word, as Christ is abiding in you and you're strengthened and depending upon him, when that's taking place in your life, friends, that's where it gets 30, 60, and 100-fold. So what is true spirituality? It's when Christ and the word of God transforms our way of life. And that's what was happening in Thessalonica. They literally were transformed by Christ and his word. And that's what God intends for us to, have, us to do in this time. What God intends for our church. That our lives would be a response of worship to the word of God and to God himself. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing passage of scripture. And Father, if there is someone here today who, as a result of just hearing about the different soils, about how people respond differently to the word of God and they see their condition as in need of you, Would they just pray with me and say, God, I just turn from self and sin, and I believe in Jesus, and I trust him. And Lord, I pray that you would guide my path and that you would fill me with a hunger for you and that you would shape my life through your word. 
And Lord, for all of us, may we bear much fruit as we abide in your Son and we see your Word living in us. God, we ask that you'd be glorified. Would what you've desired be what you accomplish for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.